0: Hi there, and welcome to Inside Intercom. I'm Liam Gerrity. This week, we're delighted to welcome back Andrew Chen. Andrew is a partner at Andreessen Horowitz. He's also a prolific essayist on startups, growth, metrics, and network effects, which is also the topic of his latest book, The Cold Start Problem, How to Start and Scale Network Effects. On today's episode, Intercom co founder and CSO Des Trainer sat down to chat with Andrew about what makes winning networks thrive, why some startups fail to successfully scale, and why products that create and compete using the network effect are vitally important today. Without further ado, let's head over to Des and Andrew in studio. Andrew,
1: you're very welcome back to the show. I'm delighted to have you here today. Uh, first of all, thanks for joining us. It's
2: wonderful to be involved. Thanks for having me.
1: Cool. So your book, I am like three quarters of the way through, which I think is a great point to do this sort of podcast because it means I'm not going to ask you questions that I know the answer to uh, in all cases.
2: <laughs>
1: what strikes me as, as uh, being quite current is that uh, a lot of folks are talking about like product-led growth today. And I feel like that that's always kind of floated around used to be called self serve or bottoms up adoption or whatever. And then specifically like the marketplace flavor of that is anchored so heavily on like network effects and what you like state as in the title of your book, The Cold Start Problem. I think like there's so much here and there's so much depth of thought that isn't captured by an average UX designer or whatever, like because there's so much like sort of, I want to say near like sociological human theory about what works along with like actual design practices as, as to how to grow a product. But maybe just to start off to help orient our audience and our audience, our collection of everyone from like customer support, sales, marketing, product people, engineers, et cetera. Maybe we just start off with like network effects specifically. Um, what do they mean and where do they start? When, do we, when does humanity start caring about such things? <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I wrote the book
2: primarily because I have been uh, trying to answer the question of what is really the central secret of all the Silicon Valley startups that have been created over the years like why is it that these are the specifically the companies that have gotten so big and become so impactful in the world and and one of the ways that i've distilled that down is really to say you know a lot of these products are just different ways to connect people whether you're at work you're talking about you know products like zoom and dropbox and products like that in terms of collaboration They're often uh, products like GitHub, which are, you know, for a particular function, trying to do a certain workflow. But even Microsoft Office, even the Google Suite uh, workspace are all kind of different flavors of this. And so when I started to explore this concept of network effects, and if you kind of go backwards in history, what you realize is, wow, this idea has been around for a really long time. It's really, at its core, the reason why when you go back to, to telephones, and I, I have a quote in the book, which is by Theodore Vail, who is the chairman of AT&T in 1905. Oh, and wow. he talks about how the phone by itself is a useless thing. It's not even a toy. It's only valuable because it lets you call people. It's only valuable based on who it lets you connect. And so I think when you, when you start to think about it that way, what you realize is, okay, yeah, that means that you can, you can build a product that has all the right features. Mm-hmm. Um, that has all the all the features that your customers ask for, but if you don't build the network alongside it, that lets people then connect with each other in the right way. Like if your coworkers aren't using it, your colleagues aren't using it, then it doesn't matter that you've built all the right features. It, the product's not going to be successful. And so I find it so fascinating to be able to go back and, and look at telephones, to look at you know, railroads actually have network effects. Cable TV has network effects. Um, a lot of these are sort of pre-tech. Companies and, and product ideas actually have network yeah. effects, but we've we cer- certainly taken them to the next level in the in the in
1: the digital yeah. age. It's fair to say, like even like like nightclubs would have network effects, right? People go there because there's people there, and and people wouldn't go there if there wasn't, right? Like it's the the quality right? of the product is determined by the volume of the usage or something. That, um, that,
2: well, and and that's right. And and the funny thing about actually about that exact thing is you actually do have a cold start problem when you start a yeah. nightclub because yeah. you're like, well, how do I get all the cool, attractive people? to the nightclub at the same time. And then, by the way, on the other side of it, and this is this is an, uh, the, the other part of the theory, which is that once you have too many people, then it's also bad. It also becomes yeah. no longer too saturated, right? And in the same way yeah. that when too many, when your grandma's using Facebook and everyone's using Facebook, you can't post your yeah. party photos and you have kind of that context collapse in the same way when a nightclub gets too
1: popular, it, it, it faces yeah. some of the same, same issues. So no, for, for sure. There's that famous quote, like, no one goes there anymore, it's too crowded. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, like, it's like that type of thing. And then I guess the, the other piece is, like, you have, I mean, I guess two things I want to say. One is, like, there are there are both cross-side and same-side network effects. The, the idea that, like, say, like, in Uber, like, you know, uh, more drivers attract more passengers, but also even the passengers can attract more passengers by, like, me getting an Uber and introducing it to my friend on, on the way home or whatever. Like, you get this idea of, like, same-side and cross-side. So, and similarly, like, you know, like it, you know, the attractive one half of the marketplace can bring all their friends the next time, and that even that makes the place even more attractive. So you have, a, I think, a lot of these things are, they're more complicated than people actually realize. When they think, okay, God, I have to see this whole thing, right?
2: That's that's right, yeah, and 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 actually, that, that that's a great point that you make, which is you can go through and build this crazy taxonomy of different forms of networks because the reality is that networks that you use in a work situation when you're growing from Company to company to company, team by team by team, is very different than Mm -hmm. something like Tinder that grows from one college campus to another college campus. Yeah. But what I tried to do is try to, you know, within the book, the cold start problem is to really abstract out some of these ideas into broader ones. And so one of the one of the things that you just mentioned is 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 uh, one of the core concepts, which is that these networks actually all have different sides to them, Mm -hmm. and the sides do different things. And so. Sometimes it's really obvious. Sometimes it's obvious, like in Uber's case, riders and drivers are very different than each other. But funny enough, even in a case like Slack, where it sort of feels like, well, everyone just kind of types and everyone just kind of talks. It's like, well, actually, there's a small percentage of people inside of a Slack ecosystem that make all the channels, that invite all the people, that talk Mm -hmm. all the time, that yeah. you know, ask all Productive
1: employees usually.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. That's right. That's right. Exactly. Yes, that's right. And so, and, and so, so one of the arguments that I make is that almost every single one of these network products has some kind of a small minority of users that become the power users that do all yeah. the work, they create all the value, but they're also more expensive to acquire. And as as you might imagine, a lot of the Slack channels are being created by first line managers, for example. Yeah that are building these channels for their teams. And they're just more expensive to acquire than a run-of-the-mill individual contributor. And so that's true in almost any, any product that you, you look across. And, and so I, I totally agree with you on that.
1: I'd like to get into that more later. One question just that I was thinking about as I was reading the book is, is it true or what's your take on the following? Whenever significant network effects exist for a, a product, that category will tend towards being a winner-takes-all type environment. I guess what I mean by that is like, if it is the case that, like, whoever gets most usage and most say same side and cross side network effect attraction, et cetera, the dominant winners emerge quite fast and it becomes more difficult for anyone else to catch up. Now, you've, I've never worked in a marketplace type uh, business. You have. uh, So uh, so I'm not trying to put words in your mouth, but it's something as I was playing out, I was like, I think, like, you know, if I'm building a note taking app and you're building a note taking app and, and it's just for personal use. I think it's just my product versus yours and the go to market and all that sort of stuff. I think if it's collaboration, I think whenever we win a user, we possibly win their whole sphere of influence as well. And as a result, if I can build network effects into mine and you can't into yours, I have a better chance of saturating the market quicker. I and mean, that's a bit of a brain dump. Yeah. So I'll just say, discuss. Like, what's your take on
2: that?
1: <laughs> <laughs> discuss. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Well, I
2: think on, on the competitive side, first, it is often the case that the most interesting companies are taking. Areas that were not previously considered network effects driven, and adding mm-hmm. network effects. Like if you think about what what Figma is, for example, yeah. you know it's it's this is this is a product category that Adobe had for a very very long time. Yeah. Or if you think about Google Docs, same thing. This is a category right. that Microsoft had for many many years, and in many ways there was some kind of like light collaboration because you'd like. You know, you do your, your mock-ups and then you like maybe email the PSDs around, you know, there's that type of a you know, thing or mm-hmm. Microsoft had like track changes, but Google went in and added commenting, added real-time collaboration, added permissions, added like all these different things such that what happens is to your point, oftentimes at least at the very least, a team that decides to start making their documents in uh, Google Docs will probably get everyone on the team to standardize on it. And then if you I mean, if you can win that network, and all the adjacent teams maybe become more likely um, to go. Now, the interesting question, though, is does it w- become winner take all? And I think one of the things that I would argue is the answer is sort of like sort of, like kind of, right. because, because the problem is that you have to think about the underlying network structure in order for it to make sense. So two, two companies that are near and dear to my heart, Airbnb, which mm-hmm. uh, Andreessen Horowitz did this Series B investment in, led by Jeff Jordan. One of my colleagues, and then also Uber, where I ran many of the growth teams there. And if you compare the two, they're just fascinating because the problem with Uber is that if they are very successful in San Francisco, that does not help them win in London. Right. It doesn't help them win in in, in New York because each yeah. of their networks, each of their sub networks is pretty separate. Geofence. Ver- yeah, yeah. Geofence, exactly. Yeah. Versus something like Airbnb, is, you know, most people are renting rooms halfway across the world. And so because of that, you have this global network effect. You have a lot more intertwining of all of their various sub-networks. The B2B example of this would be like Zoom versus Slack, right? Zoom, you're often using across organizations. Slack are usually using within an organization. And so they're going to have kind of different dynamics. And so I think what often ends up happening is you're often winner-take-all, but in the context of your local network. And it just sort of depends on the structure. So... If, if everyone decides in a company to use uh, Google Docs, then very likely that's the kind of thing that might actually spread through the entire company versus something like storage, which is a little bit more fungible, where there's kind of like, well, you know, so I share these one-off files with people all the time. Some people might do that over email, some people might do that over Dropbox, some people might do that over Box.
1: And there's a little bit less standardization as a result. Yeah, exactly. Because it doesn't actually improve or change most people's experiences just clicking a link to download in a sense.
2: Yeah, yeah. The the, the level of collaboration is just not as deep.
1: It's just not deep. Um, you know, for that. Uh um, yeah. so it makes me think of like technologies like a, your your I mean, who am I talking to in a sense? Uh, chordcom for example. I, I, I don't know if you're familiar with it. It's like a, you paste a line of JavaScript in, into your product and it automatically kind of gives you I'll put in quotes for free because I haven't used it yet, but like multiplayer collaboration features. So like a little chat box. You know, this sort of you can see your colleagues' mouse uh, or oh, okay, pointer arrows right. as I'm moving around. It kind of like gives you like the what people consider to be like the flashy multiplayer aspects of Figma. You can kind of bake in. Now, I think what what in practice what will happen is, and again, no invested interest in court. A lot of people will do this in ways that just doesn't make sense. So, like, I don't care if anyone else is looking at my expense report; it's not useful, right? But there will be areas where it's like, oh, you were about to send this email. Oh, in that case, I won't or whatever, right? You know. So, I, I think we'll see that we'll see people build tools to kind of simplify how to add some of the superficial aspects but i actually think what you're saying is it's actually deep and meaningful collaboration is the thing that wins the day not the sort of surface level stuff although that right. might be useful for sort of starting it
2: yeah i, I think realistically you're going to need to design your network features very thoughtfully mm-hmm. in conjunction i think i think that, that 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 is one of the main main arguments that that i'm making which is that if you so what, one of the case studies I have in the book is building Tinder version one. And for, so for, for, for the early team led by Sean Rad, the very first version of Tinder was actually very good. It actually had the big profile photos, it had swiping, it had messaging, and it had all the key ingredients of what you would describe as Tinder. However, what happened was in the first few months, they couldn't get anyone to use it. They were just texting their friends and their friends would kind of be like, oh, are you saying, are you kind of insulting me? Like, you're telling me, like, I'm lonely, so I should have a dating app. It was still during a time when it was less accepted. And it wasn't until they actually had a whole plan for how they were going to get their first 500 users, which was they were going to go throw a party at USC, the local campus, and they were going to make everybody who went to the party download the app. And they're going to have bouncers and you have to show the, the, the thing, but they, you know, they rented a really cool house and they sponsored yeah. this birthday party and all thing. And then all of a sudden they had their first 500 users. And so I think my, my, my point in, in saying that, in telling that story is first, you have to have a very thoughtful understanding of what you think your network's going to look like. Is it a hyperlocal network or is it a network more like in marketplace companies like eBay kind of more like topical? Is it more like that? Yeah. Is that like Reddit is another kind of like topical network as opposed to a hyperlocal, you know, you have to decide that. You have to decide how many users do I need before the network is actually valuable. A product like Zoom or Slack, Zoom might be useful with two or three people, Slack might be useful with five or ten people, the people on your yeah. team. Something like Tinder or Airbnb or Uber needs hundreds of network participants yeah. all in a hyperlocal region in order for it to work. So you have to understand that. And so I think that's why I guess I would find it hard to kind of copy and paste, you know, kind of uh, like other people's features into your products because you have to think about, does my app need to be geo aware or is it fine if it's kind of like a a company? You know, so it sounds like what Corda's done is a really interesting one. If your particular approach is teams within companies for collaboration.
1: Yeah. and like just looking at what each other are doing versus actively collaborating together, I guess, right? Yeah, 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 exactly. Right. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense.
0: Before we continue with today's guest, I just want to take a quick second to let you know about our amazing archive of podcasts. It's full of insights from thought leaders from the worlds of product management, design, marketing, and a lot more. People like Megan Keeney-Anderson, Megan was VP of marketing for HubSpot for over nine years. She joined us to talk about how marketers should adapt their customer acquisition strategies in the age of the internet.
2: internet will rise and fall and go through different iterations, and our job as content creators, as marketers, is to really study that and stay close to it and adapt.
0: You can hear Megan's episode and lots more on intercom.com forward slash blog forward slash podcasts. Okay, let's get back to today's interview.
1: To get into the specifics for a second, uh, in the book, I think one of the really nice frameworks you have is how you break down the theory, if you like, the cold start theory, which is that you you break into like five, I think, primary stages, just like the problem, just the tipping point. Escape velocity. Yeah, escape velocity, yeah. Uh, the ceiling. And then lastly, like the sort of the sustainable moat. Maybe like, yeah. you know, obviously without trying to give away your entire book, could you like break those down a little bit further so that our, our readers will know uh, what's going on yeah, in each of them?
2: Yeah, kind of what, what, what I mean by each of them, yeah. So the the, the first part of the book, which is focused on what, what the book is titled, which is The Cold Start Problem, is all about what happens when you have zero users you don't know what to do. And what I'm doing in that part is really to teach the reader some of the core central concepts of what I'm discussing later. And so what I talk about is what, so some of what we've already discussed, which is that networks have these sides, networks have these benefits. You know, Network effects often is classically defined as products that become more useful as more people use them. Why it's important, this whole concept in the context of a world that is increasingly competitive, there's millions of apps, Everyone's trying all these different things, and what it means is that you, by having a network, you kind of have a way to break through, and you're able to build one of the most valuable products in, in the whole industry. Are often they're all often built on network effects, and so I talk about how the core strategy there is really to figure out how to build these atomic networks. Kind of these, how do you get a single team to utilize your product and get excited? And if you can figure out how to build one of those, and the, and the second one, and the third one, you can probably figure out how to build ten or twenty. And kind of like off you go. And once you achieve that, then you're able to get enough momentum to hit the tipping point, which I talk about as a repeatable process of generating these atomic networks. And if you're able to do that, and I have a bunch of examples and playbooks for how companies like Reddit and how companies like Zoom achieve that, what ends up happening there is you're able to really spin up your your user base. And so some of the ideas I talk about there is what does it mean to subsidize the market? Like why is it that so many of these marketplace companies, for instance, whether you're talking about a B2B marketplace or a consumer marketplace, often end up subsidizing the first few years of their existence? Like the unit economics are often completely upside down. And it takes years to get to a point where you can even talk about being break-even. And why is that? And why why is that often a smart idea? Right. Yeah. Um, and, and a lot of that has to do with the fact that you're you're, again you're, you're you're trying to get to the tipping point you're trying to get the market to choose you and if you can win the market then you become in the monopoly
1: and then, then you can apply to price basically
2: exactly and and yeah. then you can figure out how to do everything in the next phase which is the escape velocity which is all about how do you do things in the product and on your team so that you're able to double down triple down quadruple down on something that's working and mm-hmm. if you're doing that then you're probably building a growth team you're probably finding your you know, second and third and fourth go-to-market channel. Whether that's more like you know paid marketing or SEO or one of these things, you're often thinking about how to build your product in a way where it will spread inside of a company automatically. So you're building these viral sharing features, doing all of that acceleration. And then I talk about the ceiling, which is kind of what happens when you're a later stage company that has network effects, which is you find that your growth just slows down. You just can't help it. It's just very, very hard. And and the reason is because if you are tripling, quadrupling in your early years, the problem becomes, well, in year seven or eight, there's often just not enough customers in the market. And so you're starting to hit saturation. You're starting to hit a point where like Dropbox, you get to this point where a lot of your product usage is being driven by people who are pirating movies in Southeast Asia like you're never going to make any money on those users so what yeah. what, do you, what do you do to kind of you know focus your your audience down similarly if you are a big social product or your eBay or marketplace or something like that you have to deal with trolls and fraudsters and spammers so this whole section is sort of describing how it is that these products that we honestly think of as invincible actually are not and actually are struggling to just Stay on a growth rate that makes sense, and I think we all intuitively understand that. We both talk about a company like Facebook, like it's invincible, and we also talk about how we're all using Instagram more often,
1: all right, TikTok things. or whatever, yeah, tell or me.
2: TikTok or whatever, right? Yeah. And then the final section, uh, the moat, is really about. Oftentimes, when you ask a startup that has network effects, "Hey, how are you going to compete against everyone else?" They just say, "We have network effects." Yeah. yeah. Well, it turns out they have network effects too, most likely yes. because they're also marketplace companies, or they're also collaboration tools or whatever. And so what you have to do in that case is you have to figure out, well, if you're the big guy and they're the smaller player, then what do you do differently? And then similarly, if you're a smaller player and you're going after a big guy, maybe you can figure out how to cherry pick some of the various smaller networks that they have. Mm Airbnb is not going after Craigslist's entire business. They just went after their shared rooms product Mm -hmm. and, and went after that. If you are competing against Microsoft Office, you're probably not building everything in the suite and all the features. What you're trying to do is you're trying to pick off some smaller piece like what Notion is doing and just building a great product just on that and then growing from there. And so I talk about some of the techniques and strategies involved in a world where you are
1: primarily where, where everyone has network effects. So that all makes sense. On the, on the hitting the ceiling piece, how much of it is about, like obviously as you hit, like kind of as you go mainstream, you are at risk of like just, you know, let's just say like worst usage as you kind of just keep chasing it. You're going to get pirated or trolled <laughs> or whatever. Uh, you've gotten all the like natural usage and now you're trying to force it in a sense. Is the best strategy in your opinion, like guide the market to say, hey, don't expect 100% growth for us when we're already at 2 billion users? <laughs> or, or is it like find other sources of stickiness in a sense. So like, hey, we've dominated like, like, I don't want to, like Dropbox, I feel like unfair saying this, but like, hey, we've dominated file sharing, but we need to find something else that's not file sharing. So like, maybe that's why we build paper or something. It's like, find the next sticky thing because the old one's going to grow old too quickly, right?
2: Yeah. Well, I, I think number one, absolutely, you have to figure out the new network product that drives everything forward. Yeah. You know, for, first of all, I think, I, think, I think that's the actual true solve to the whole thing, is that these products just generally follow some kind of an S-curve, and then you're going to need to come up with a new one. Now, the the whole problem is that when you're a larger company, you often get to a state where everyone who was around to solve the cold start problem for your first product has retired, has left the company and is off doing other things. And the people that you have left running things have only been kind of peacetime Yes. An only known peacetime. And they've never yeah. known what it takes to build something from zero. And I think that's. I think one you, of the you really have
1: another problem that Google had a lot of, which is like, even if you may have a really bad idea for a product, you get 100 million users on launch day because, like, you're Google. You know, uh, yeah. like, you, yeah. you kind of like, right. ever, like you know, yeah. so like, it's. I feel like you see bits of this, like, when Facebook try and expand their product line, or, or I'm sure we'll see more, like, even if, like, Slack wanted to move into something, they're going to gonna bump into this challenge. Like, we get a flavor of this yeah. in the intercom where we launch something new, like, for like, Two, three, four weeks, it's popular.
2: <laughs> we we get no active real signal because
1: yeah. guess what? Like asking twenty-five thousand people to try something when they already try all the rest of your stuff, of course they're gonna try it.
2: Yeah, of course they're gonna try it. Yeah.
1: And, and so like I think like, you know, what you can have like, and this is like the sympathy I have for Google a lot, is they do launch a lot of software. They certainly went through a period of like, you know, seven different messaging apps and three social networks and things like that. And I think it can be quite a while before they realize, huh, this isn't actually sticking at all. What we're seeing, what looks like a (laughs) lot of usage is just a lot of slush in a sense, right? Yeah, that's
2: right. That's right. Well, I think one of the things I really admire about the Snapchat team, and uh, as, as I've gotten to know them over the years, is that they will do things like, they'll just go to a high school and just build apps for one high school for a whole year. And they'll kind of dispatch a little tiger team to go do that. And they won't, go and tell them like, where's Snapchat? Like, you know, like do this, yeah, or do yeah. that. They'll just do the hard work of what does yeah. it take to start from zero and get really small groups excited about where you, what you're doing? Because I think I think the main issue to, to, to your point is when you're looking for things that look like big numbers, getting a hundred million people, you know, you're focusing ultimately on the wrong metric in that case. Yeah. I think you know, what I would advocate is you have to be so focused on retention and engagement. Yeah. And you have to be really, really focused on small groups of people getting entire groups on at the same time, and then building network by network. You can't kind of do the top-down. You know, I call it a big bang launch. I think everyone gets used to at some point a thing where you just like write a blog post and you talk to all the you know news and media outlets and PR outlets, and then you expect to get a huge amount of usage. But the problem is, you get a lot of disjointed usage. You get mm-hmm. a lot of kind of a random spray paint of just random users that don't know each other. And as opposed to really, really focusing and taking time to build. And I, and I think this is really one of the asymmetric advantages of startups is honestly the patience of the founding team, that they're able to work with really small numbers of people for substantial periods of
1: time versus larger companies, as you know, just you get in a place where you just want to go big really fast. Yeah, exactly. I think it's like the willingness to focus on true product usage, as in, the like, people are using this thing for exactly what I designed it to be used for, as opposed to just, "Hey, our numbers are looking really high." My last question: It would not be twenty twenty one if I didn't ask you a question about crypto on the blockchain or something in that space. <laughs> of course, uh, of course. And I'll try. I'll, I'll again phrase this one loosely so you can uh, tackle it any way you wish, but. I guess, like, when I think about the various webs, if Web 1 was multiplayer and Web 2 was like the social era of the net, and if Web 3 is built on all of those, do you see the idea of the cold start problem, even when I think about like NFTs or coins or any of that sort of stuff, do you see this as being like kind of baked into Web 3 from, you know, will all solutions from here onwards kind of like need to solve this problem? Do you think it's relevant at all? Uh, How do you think about Web 3 and your book, say?
2: Yeah, I I think um, it is super, super interesting. I tried to actually. I've various starts and stops of trying to write more web three content into the book and what i realized is it is changing so fast mm-hmm. that it is unless you're literally talking about yeah. bitcoin and yeah. ethereum and yeah. and but you will age your book general like, it, it, yeah, in, yeah, in exactly. yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's right. right and so 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 and so that's what i've done i i have a mention of Bitcoin and Ethereum, but I, I don't yeah. I don't go super deep into it. I, I think, look, I think the reality is that network effects is an inherent part of Web3 in such a deep way. Why do I think Bitcoin is valuable and why does Alice think Bitcoin is valuable? It's because, well, every, everyone else we know thinks mm-hmm. Bitcoin is valuable and that's why it's valuable. It's, it's very self-referential. Even if you were to literally take the Bitcoin code base and fork it and the blockchain and fork it, that new dip coin would not be... More valuable than the original one because you literally just need the market participants in there, and this is true for Bitcoin, and this is true for Bored Apes, this is true for CryptoPunks, and so on. and and so, what that means is, if you are in a world where you are building NFTs, you're going to do a big NFT drop, then you're going to have to solve this cold start problem. You're going to have to figure out, like, well, which you know, where where are the cool kids hanging out? You know, on Discord, on the right subreddits, on the right, you know, to get the right Twitter influencers into the drop. And that becomes a thing that you're going to have to do. Now, we are in an age right now where every single cool NFT project is getting a lot of attention. And I think we'll get to a point where it's going to have to be more sophisticated because all the techniques that are working now, I think in a year, will stop working. Like people are going to ignore you know, when folks are, are super noisy about something on social media, for instance. The other variation of this that I think is interesting is over the last couple quarters, we've also started to see a lot of consumer-facing Web3 projects. Yeah. And in particular, I spend a lot of time in crypto gaming and companies like Axie Infinity and many of the smaller companies that we, we funded now that are quite early. And the big thing that you see there is, well, you know, you're, you're going to overlay a series of networks on top of each other. There's both the economic aspect of it, but also right. a lot of these games are going to be multiplayer. A lot of these games are going to feel like they're 3D kind of immersive social networks. And, and that also has a very network effects driven kind of set of dynamics as well also. And it's why 20 years ago, we saw that games was, you know, you go to like a retailer, like a Best Buy or something, and, you know, buy a cartridge or buy a DVD and stick it into your console. But these days, you know, these, a lot of these games have been around, like Counter-Strike has been around for over 20 years. You know, League of Legends has been around for over 10 years. And it's because
1: of their inherent ne- network effects that allows them to stay popular for so long. So I think it's very exciting. Yeah, no, it, it absolutely is. Okay, Andrew's new book, the Cold Star Problem, how to start and scale network effects is out now, and I suggest you all pick it up. Andrew, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for having me.
0: I hope you enjoyed Dez's chat with Andrew Chen. If you did, and you want to hear even more from Andrew, he's been a guest on our show before, where he talks about finding what he calls the fresh powder in growth. The link to that episode is in the show notes. Finally, I love hearing from listeners and reading what you have to say about the show. So please leave a review on Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast platform. Or just give us a shout out on social at Intercom. Okay, that's all for today. We'll be back next week with more Inside Intercom. This is Inside Intercom.